Welcome to the Conduit Deeper Podcast, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the details that surround our current sermon series, from current events to fascinating finds to conversations that take us deeper into the Word. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to our Deeper Podcast. My name is Mo, Executive Pastor at Conduit Church, joined with our lead pastor, Darren Tyler, and this week, a special guest, astrophysicist, author, and maybe one of your uh, intellectual heroes, <laughs> yeah, Hugh he Ross. My, he makes my scalp tingle. Hugh Ross joined us, uh, f- joins us for this podcast. And and I know, Darren, you, uh, you've been following Hugh for, for a lot of years, and we, we get into this in the podcast, but what prompted the idea to have Hugh join us today? I've been... 2004 was the first time I discovered Hugh. And have been, I mean, I've been reading his stuff for, I think I've, I actually think I've read everything he's ever written, which is a lot. But when we decided we were going to go through Genesis 1 through 11, he was the perfect guy for that because his book, A Matter of Days, that's what I bought in 2004. And that's what we got into in this interview. If you're listening today, you're going to, we're going to cover everything from space aliens (laughs) to whether or not you, uh, the, the earth is young or not. And. To, one of the things that I I appreciated about what he does and appreciate what everybody does is there's two main things that when, especially young people, let's say that they've turned their back on faith, two main reasons. One is, and it's, it's far and away, it seems like it's number one is God's commands about sexuality. But the second is science, the belief that the Bible is contradicted by science. And so they've turned their back on their faith because of that. And Hugh— Yeah, it's true. Uh, is a is a fascinating guy because as an astrophysicist he came to faith because of science he didn't lose his faith because of science so being able to say and, and by the way if you're young Earth you know look I believe in a guy uh, a man that was raised from the dead right so I believe in miraculous things but at the same time God's been around for ever. So what was he doing for a trillion years, let's say, before That's so we got many here? years. That's so many years. Yeah. Like if you look at it on a calculator or yeah. just like write it out, it's so many years. Yeah. Like what was he doing, right? All oh, that time, man. what was happening in the – and I had questions too. Like, okay, if, uh, you know, this star is 10 light years away, then if the earth is 6,000 years old, I wouldn't be able to see that star. Right. You, you know, so there was – I had some just reasonable – I've thought reasonable questions – and stumbled onto Hugh. And so he, this is what he does. I mean, he just sits around being smart. It's incredible. He's going to join us on, uh, I believe it's March 3rd. It's the first Sunday of March. We're going to kick off this series in the book of Genesis. He's going to be here in person joining us. And, and, and we're going to dive right into the deep end of Genesis with him. And so we wanted to kind of kick that out there, kind of tease this a little bit as to what's coming by having him join us today. So with, uh, without further ado, Hugh Ross on the Deeper Podcast. So, Hugh, you, I got your book in 2004 or five. Really. It was right after A Matter of Days came out. I was, I got it, I think at a Barnes and Noble. I was trying to remember. I, I feel like it was an end cap. I was trying to remember how I even found books before Kindle and social media, but for somehow I found it. And I, I read it on a tour bus. It was super late at night and I just couldn't put it down because the thing that, the way that you came to faith is actually 
when you wrote that book is kind of what saved mine. And I wonder if you could tell us briefly, maybe, how does an astronomer, astrophysicist, a you know, college-educated guy, how do you come to faith with well, the Bible? Yeah, because actually my studies in astrophysics have brought me to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, I was one of these little nerdy kids at uh, seven years of age. I was reading five or six books on physics and astronomy a week. Uh, by the age of eight, I knew my future career would be in astrophysics. At eight. And, uh, from, yeah. And from eight onwards, I would basically you know, look at a sub-discipline of astronomy every year. And it's when I was 16, I studied cosmology. And at that time, there was a debate, is it a steady-state universe, an oscillating universe, uh, a Big Bang universe? And I realized of all the different possible models being explained, the observations were heavily favoring Big Bang cosmology. And as Big Bang, the universe has a beginning. If there's a beginning, there must be a cosmic beginner. So as at age 17, I set out to find that cosmic beginner. Uh, you know, I didn't know any Christians. Uh, you know, in Canada, they're hard to find where I grew up. And uh, so I thought, well, the first place to look would be the writings of the great philosophers, especially Immanuel Kant, because he's considered the father of cosmology. I read his critique of pure reason, and I said, there's a lot here that's just not fitting together. I looked at René Descartes. Then I decided to look at the different holy books of the religions of the world, beginning with the Vedas. And when I read the Vedas, I says, oh, this is where the oscillating universe model comes from. They call it the reincarnating universe. Uh, but I knew, noticed they had the time scale wrong. They had the universe reincarnating every 4.32 billion years. I knew that number was wrong. I also knew that there was no way the entropy measure of the universe would permit a rebound. So I put Hinduism aside, looked at Buddhism, discovered their cosmology was the same as what you see in the Hindu faith, looked at the Quran, and uh, I saw that it had three accounts of creation, that they contradicted one another. And what really threw me off is that they were claiming in the Quran that the stars were closer to us than the planets. And it's like, you don't need a telescope to figure out that that's incorrect. So now when I tell people I didn't really get to know Christians until I came to Caltech to do my postdoctoral research, I did see two Christians from 30 feet away when I was 11 years of age. And these were two businessmen that came into our public school, put two boxes on our teacher's desk and left. They didn't say a single word. They just put two boxes on the teacher's desk. But in those boxes were Gideon Bibles. So I'm a Gideon convert. I began reading that Gideon wow. Bible when I was 17. I remember it was basically between midnight and 2 a.m. where I would study the Gideon Bible because I knew my family wouldn't approve. So, uh, uh, But I spent 18 months going through that Gideon Bible trying to find a provable error of contradiction. Couldn't find any, but I found over a hundred places where the Bible accurately predicted future scientific discoveries, including at least three of the fundamental features what we now know to be Big Bang cosmology. So I realized this book had to be inspired by the one who actually did all the creation events. And so, at age 19, I signed my name at the back of a Gideon Bible, 
giving my life to Jesus Christ. And eight years later, I got to meet Christians and get to know them and actually found a church that I could participate in. And that was in Southern uh, California? Yeah, it's a church in Caltech. And, uh, uh, you know, they put me on their pastoral staff to train people how to use science, God's book of nature, to bring people to the book of scripture into relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, and somewhere on this back bookshelf, I actually, yeah, here it is. This is the Gideon Bible that brought wow. me to faith in Christ. I still keep it. So, one of the, the things been chewed off by our dog, but this is what they. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, like that's one of the greatest testimonies. Having been a guy in a hotel, I, Mo and I both traveled professionally for most of our adult life, and you know, the Gideon Bible in the hotel room uh, was something that. I sort of took for granted. I didn't that. So it's cool to see somebody whose life obviously was dramatically affected. One of the questions that I had that is, this is more personally for me. You were on staff at a church with John Eldridge. Am I correct on that? That's correct. Yeah. So I actually baptized John Eldridge. He came to Christ at our church. So I find it to be fascinating. I was, I told this to Dan and Jill Colvin, our, our mutual friends, but they two two authors that have impacted me the most for completely different reasons. I mean, antithesis, right? The heart and the head. <laughs> Not only knew each other, like you baptized him, and I, by the way, had the privilege of baptizing Stacy in the Jordan River uh, in wow. Israel five or six years ago. That was a while. It was just a uh, anyway. That's a whole other conversation. But my question is. How do you and John have a conversation? Because he's wanting to go into the woods, you know, howl oh. at the moon, and you're looking at the stars uh, and seeing, like, I'd almost pay money to watch you guys have a conversation. Well, we're a lot alike. Yeah, he's way more intellectual than he lets on. So <laughs> That's fair, uh, by the way. That's fair. Yes. So does that mean you're uh, a lot more heart than you let on? Yes. I mean, for example, I love going out into the wilderness. I mean, I grew up in British Columbia, and it's like, uh, and I've actually written a book, uh, this book here. Let me pull it up for you. Ah, yes, here it is. Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. Amazing book. And this book is based a lot on my wilderness experiences in British Columbia, because I would purposely go there, and I would go to places where I knew humans hadn't been in decades. And so you engage animals who've never been abused by humans. And what you notice is that it's just like what you see in the book of Job. They want to relate to you. Uh, the birds and the mammals, they're not only curious about us, they really want relationship with us. So I got to personally experience that. And I've been able to take my wife and our sons out and just let them have that same experience. Uh, where I remember one time we were on top of a mountain with my younger son, and we were surrounded by these mountain goats. And he said, looks like they want our lunch. And I says, no, they just want to hang with us. They don't want our lunch. They just want to be with us. And I says, watch what happens when you go down the mountain. They'll go down with us. That's exactly what wow. happened. And so one of the big lessons that Job talks about is that God designed these nephesh animals to relate to us and to serve and please us, a higher species. Likewise, he designed us human beings to relate to God and to serve and please him, a higher being. As our sin causes these animals to run away from us, 
instead of coming to us. Our sin likewise causes us to run away from God instead of going towards him. And just like these animals, when they're emotionally bonded to us, they outperform their wild cousins. Likewise, when we bond to our creator, we outperform our wild self. I mean, it's something as part of my testimony. I saw my academic uh, abilities and achievements skyrocket when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. So, And now uh, I understand how you and Eldridge are buddies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> as, you, as you begin to dive into Job and you dove into Genesis early in your faith, and which— you know, was a catalyst for you writing your book, A Matter of Days. Okay, so you make a really compelling case that, that we have an old earth. Yes. The humans are relatively new. Yes. That that concept may be a relatively uh, also new information for a lot of people that are listening. Um, and in your book, you said that, 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 that the meaning of the word day, yom, um, was, was what was was what this idea hinged upon of old earth. Oh, yeah, well, could I you unpack that for first, us a little bit? Yeah. The very first time I picked up the Gideon Bible and began to go through it, I said, hey, uh, these days in Genesis 1 must have at least three distinct definitions because three are used in the text. Creation day one, it uses the word day for the daylight hours. Creation day four, it's contrasting seasons, days, and years. That's day is 24 hours. But Genesis 2.4 uses the same word day to refer to the entirety of creation history. And then I noticed that the first six days uh, end with an evening-morning phrase. And I wasn't certain what evening and morning meant in the original Hebrew, but I knew it was telling us that each of these days had a definite start time and a definite end time. You get to creation day seven, there's no evening-morning phrase. I said, well, it seems to imply that the day is not yet finished. And both Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4 tell us we're still in God's seventh day. And, you know, when I was growing up, my parents were concerned that I was being obsessive about physics and astronomy. And so they bought our family this big, thick book of evolutionary biology. I was the only one in the family that read it. But I remember at age 11 telling my parents, Mom, Dad, the numbers don't work. Wow. Uh, we have all these new orders and classes and phyla of life showing up before humanity, and none of that happens after humanity. Well, when I picked up the Bible for the first time, I said, this answers the fossil record enigma. For six days, God creates. On the seventh day, he stops creating. It explains why we're not seeing uh, new families and orders and classes of life today. But we see an abundance of that before humans uh, were on the face of the earth. So I says, hey, this book seems to have all the science right. And that's what motivated me to keep reading uh, through the rest of the Bible hmm. and realizing this book really is the inspired and errant word of God. And in my latest book, Rescuing Inerrancy, I basically point out that the only way to read all 66 books of the Bible literally and consistently, as if indeed the earth and the universe are much older than thousands of years, but where humanity is relatively recent, you know, a few tens of thousands of years ago, not millions of years ago. And this is what the scientific record is testifying. So we really do see a concurrence 
between God's book of nature and God's book of scripture. Uh, there is no uh, contradiction or discordance. And by your analysis, what what hour are we in on day seven? What time is it? <laughs> well, it was Jesus who said, I will come back and bring you into the new creation. When you take the good news of salvation to all the people groups of the world, making significant numbers in all those people groups, disciples. And so I'm not waiting for the Lord to return. The Lord has said, I'll come back when you humans uh, finish the job. And in the Sunday class I teach for skeptics, uh, for a few years, uh, Ralph Winter would regularly attend. He founded the U.S. Center for World Mission. And he wrote a couple of books where he basically said, evangelical Christians today have the wealth, the technology, and the people to finish the Great Commission in less than 10 years. Wow. All we lack is the motivation. So, wow. Yeah, as soon as we finish the job, uh, we get to go into the eighth day. Wow. Yeah, that's the, um, so you don't know this about our church, but. We spend millions of dollars on the global mission um, wow. because of that very thing. We spend a lot of time in Islamic countries and, you know, their version of eschatology is they can hasten the return of their Messiah with bloodshed and violence. You know, ours is we can hasten his return with spreading the gospel with love, you know. Right. And right. so we, man, we've doubled down on that for, for 14 years and— I've actually never heard that phrase. I might even steal that. I'm speaking at a mission conference Sunday night. Like we're waiting for the Lord to return. He's waiting for us. To, He's waiting for, for us. us. Exactly. <laughs> so one of the things that that really, that I've loved about your work, I've, I've read almost, if, if not everything, almost everything you've written, but, but you synthesize well the, con, the confluence of where scripture speaks of things that were not even yet discovered and got them all right. Um, Back in the early 90s, I read Hawking's A Brief History of Time, and I know that wasn't a faith book. But even I, you know, a non-scientist could tell, God, he's using religious language yes. to try to describe scientific principles. And yes. So one of the things, I think it was in a matter of days that you broke down, was these are the things that we can see in Scripture that, con that do not contradict, they're not contradicted by anything in science. Right. And so you spoke of like the, the uh, creation being like 10, 15,000. I think it was somewhere in that range years ago, as far as man kind coming on the scene. Uh, you spoke of the things that you would, if you're a believer, so for instance, what I've, if I'm remembering it right, man, we can't say from the Bible nor from science that man evolved from an ape. Like there was something, there was this break in the fossil record and something new started at this moment where no new orders, no new families. Do you think there was like a cosmic event that happened that ended all of that? And then God, so I've heard a theory from others, like Chuck Missler, a few that the Genesis one speaks of not just a creation, but a recreation, like a re, like the, uh, the Hebrew word tohu vavohu, which is uh, the world was form formless and without void. Uh, they make a case that it is, is a recreation. Like, where do you land in, in that? So the, I, there's two questions about that. Where do you land in that? And did man evolve or was man created from the, from the dust of the earth? Yeah, 
Well, actually, uh, I knew Chuck Missler. We had dinners as several times. That does not surprise uh, me. I do, uh, I do take a different position. Uh, I don't think it's a recreation at all. Uh, you know, when I came to Genesis, it's, you know, I was a grade 12 student, and I've been taught the scientific method in all 12 years of my public education. And what amazed me about Genesis 1, the scientific method jumps right off the page. I was naive. Nine years later, I found out why. Uh, the origin of the scientific method is from the biblical creation text. But what you see, see in Genesis 1 is the first two steps of the scientific method in the Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. You open up Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that phrase, the heavens and the earth, shows up 13 times in the Old Testament. I've found that the word universe never appears in the Old Testament. They don't have a word for universe, but they have this phrase, the heavens and the earth. So that's the focus of Genesis 1-1. God created the universe of matter, energy, space, and time. But in Genesis 1-2, the frame of reference has changed. The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters, meaning we're to interpret the six days of creation from the point of view of an observer on the surface of the earth uh, below the clouds. And what you see in the parallel account in the book of Job, is that God had blanketed the seas with clouds that kept the early seas dark. And then what you see in Genesis 1-2, uh, the tohu wobohu that Chuck Missler speaks about, I interpret that as the initial conditions. That's step two of the scientific method. Don't interpret until you first establish the frame of reference and the initial conditions. It tells us it's dark on the surface of the waters, the water covers the whole surface of the earth, and the earth is empty and unfit for life. But then the Spirit of God begins to work and transform the earth and make it fit for life and then fills it with life. That's basically what you see uh, in the six uh, creation days. Now, at the end of your uh, question, you made a second point, and I'm trying to remember what that second point was. Well, the question of it was, um... So there are, there are people that I know personally, pastors, who would say that God used evolution to create man. And what say you? Yeah, well, not only is Adam and Eve a product of special creation, that's also true of all the bipedal primate species that preceded Adam and Eve. I mean, to get things to evolve, I mean, evolution is basically driven by natural selection mutations, gene exchange, and epigenetics. Those are the four mechanisms, but they're only capable of producing small changes. Now, if you get millions of those small changes, they can make something significant to happen. Uh, but it was the famous paleontologist, James Valentine, that said, you know, from a naturalistic perspective, uh, these four mechanisms over time will produce a diversification of species. And if you wait longer, you get new genera, then new families, then new orders, new classes. And last of all, you get the phylum. But what James Valentine and his colleagues have written in several of their research papers, when you look at the fossil record, you get the opposite. The phyla show up first. You get the diversification of phyla at the Cambrian explosion before the diversification of classes 
before the diversification in orders. And last of all, you get the diversification of species. It's the exact opposite of what you would predict from a materialistic perspective. And another book I wrote, Improbable Planet, I quoted from different paleontologists who focused on the Cambrian and Avalon explosions of life. And they all are agreeing with one another that the more they learn about these events in the fossil record, the more impossible it becomes to defend a materialistic interpretation of life. So when the Bible says we're created in the image of God, uh, and where it tells us that God created and made, I mean, there's three verbs you see in Genesis 1 and 2 in the original Hebrew for God bringing humans on the scene. Bara, Asa, Yatsar. All three of them imply that we're the product of divine, miraculous, instantaneous intervention. We're not the product of evolution. And uh, the date you get from Genesis 2 tells us that God created Adam and Eve sometime during the last ice age, because only during the last ice age do the four rivers come together in one location. Today, that location is 200 feet below sea level. But during the last ice age, it would have been above sea level. And where's that location? Pardon me? Where is that location? Southeast portion of the Persian Gulf is where those four rivers would come together. Uh, so, yes, below sea level today, but during the last ice age, it would have been above sea level. And what I find interesting, the biblical date for the origin of humanity is actually more accurate than the scientific date. The scientific date is somewhere between uh, 40,000 years ago and uh, you know 300,000 years ago. The Bible, sometime during the last ice age, which would put it between uh, 15 and 120,000 years ago. So with yeah. carbon-14, you can push it earlier than that, uh, you know, sometime between, say, 40 and 120,000 years ago. That brings up an interesting question. I, I'm from southern Ohio, and uh, in, in that area, uh, Ken Ham is really popular. Right, he's from Northern Kentucky, Southern Ohio Creation Museum. Answers in right. Genesis is all located there. Have you had an opportunity to 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 debate him, or at least respond to obviously uh, what he believes and, and and what he teaches is in a young Earth? How have you guys re- have you guys reconciled that uh, together, or or how would you reconcile that belief? Well, we did a two hour televised debate on the John Ankerberg show uh, a number of years ago. And uh, the one that's gotten a lot of attention is I was on the Trinity Broadcasting Network where they had six of us uh, basically there for a 30-minute show where each of us would say, hey, in five minutes, give what you think is the strongest scientific (laughs) evidence for the God of the Bible. And Ken Ham was one of the six. I was one of the six. And since I was the lone scientist on the team, there was one other scientist, there was a physicist there too, but I assumed that they would go to me last, uh, but they went to me first. Wow. So I gave my five minutes and uh, Ken Ham immediately turned it into a debate in spite of the fact that the moderator said, this is not a debate, each of you gets five minutes, don't challenge one another, just give what you think is the best scientific evidence. So, uh, and, he was basically trying to claim that only young earth creationists hold the Bible to be authoritative. 
And I kept trying to, you know, get a word in edgewise saying, it's not about authority, it's about interpretation. Uh, you know, we both believe that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. I mean, I actually have all of our staff members sign on an annual basis that they uphold all the affirmations and denials of the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy, especially hmm. the hermeneutic statements. But what I notice about my young earth friends, they're not able to sign the hermeneutic statements. They can sign the doctrinal statements, but they're not the hermeneutic statements. And so hermeneutic statements that really support the doctrine that God's given us two books, the book of nature, the book of scripture, both are utterly trustworthy and reliable. And by integrating the two books, you get to figure out where you're making mistakes in your interpretation. And I don't think it's an accident that the Bible has 66 books. With 66 books, you can use the 66 books to help correct your faulty interpretations of one book. I mean, Romans is not going to contradict Hebrews. So if your interpretation leads you to that conclusion, you know you've made a mistake. We use the same principle in science. Physics is not going to contradict chemistry. Chemistry is not going to contradict geology or biology. And so we see a discordance. We know we've misinterpreted something or we need more data. I mean, that's what drives scientific research, and that's what drives theological research. So what would be your what would be your number one, your biggest argument against young Earth? Uh, the laws of physics do not change. The Bible says in seven different places that the laws that govern the heavens and the earth have been fixed since the creation event and will remain fixed until the full number of humans that God intends to redeem have been redeemed. And that's abundantly affirmed in astronomy. Every time we look at a star or a galaxy, the spectra that we get tells us what the laws of physics were when the light left that star or galaxy. And I just wrote an article, it's posted at our website at reasons.org, is that astronomical measurements show that the laws of physics have not changed to 18 places of the decimal over the entire history of the universe. Wow. And young Earth creationists in their rate study have said multiple times in that two volume set, if there's no change in the laws of physics, both the Earth and the universe must be billions of years old. However, they say, we think the laws of physics have changed, but they need the laws of physics to change by a factor of a billion times at the time of the flood. And uh, in fact, I just debated a, a week ago uh, a young Earth geologist, and uh, he said, yeah, we have a big problem because if you change the radiometric decay rates by a factor of a billion times, that's enough to evaporate all the water in the face of the Earth, vaporize the ark, and all the people and animals on board the ark. We don't have a solution to that problem, but we're working on it. And my response was, wait a minute, that's an unsolvable problem. It's intractable. You don't even have a scenario for explaining how you're going to get around that. And in science, when we have no scenario to explain an anomaly, we know we got the wrong model. Hmm. Yeah, I wish that I could be as sure of one thing as Ken Ham is of everything. 
<laughs> well, where the two of us agree, we do agree that the Bible is the inspired and right. errant word of God. Which is and, why uh, I wanted you to not only be with us on the deeper, but to speak, teach at our congregation, because the thing that is important that you and I, I know we agree on this, and that is that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And much of what's happening in progressive Christianity, I, I think you've uh, appeared on Elisa Childers' show at some point. Right. But progressive Christianity, Elisa's a longtime friend, like from my music business days. But the, there, where she came from in that church she was in, the, the progressive idea is that the Bible was the best they understood, but they, it was wrong, and now we know better with it. And that is not what you're saying. Um, not at all. In fact, I respond to those theologians in my latest book, Rescuing Inerrancy. And uh, you know, it, been, it was quite alarming. It's a team of theologians that came to me and said, Hugh, you need to write this book. They're going after you by name, but they're also claiming that we misread the Bible for 20 centuries, and now we need to read it in a very different way. And they're even claiming that Paul got Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 wrong. And it's like, this is not a trivial uh, text of Scripture. Right. This is the core of the gospel. And they're all claiming that science forces a reinterpretation of the Bible. But I notice none of the theologians saying we have to reinterpret the Bible for scientists. And so... The subtitle of my book was A Scientific Defense, making the point that the latest science actually gives us a stronger case for biblical inerrancy, not a weaker case. And that, uh, you know, we really are descended from one man and one woman. We don't have to toss out the doctrine of original sin. It's, you know, it's totally defended, more strongly defended by science today than it was, say, even 20 years ago. Yeah, that's the thing that's been inspiring to me is that as new information is coming online, scientific, whatever, like it, it doesn't, contra at least none that I've found that contradicts scripture, but also that just doesn't contradict the reality of who we are, which is people will make the, the statement, well, the Bible is an ancient book, and so it's not relevant, but we're an ancient people. So it's the, the human nature hasn't changed. Like we we might have better buttons and, and more technology, but at the core of it, we're still fallen humanity, and that is demonstrably provable. On you could draw, you could literally parachute into any island on the planet, and if there are humans there, Romans one is a hundred percent on display, right? Right. You talked one of the questions that I was. We kind of touched on it, but it, this is something that really stood out to me was that the seventh day didn't have an end, right? That it's, right. Um, and so from your perspective, and this is two questions, how do you answer the genealogies in this? So the seventh day is, uh, this is kind of not related, but kind of related. The, the, the date of the earth being young, whether it's Ken Ham or, well, they'll use the Genesis genealogies to sort of do the math to take it to around 6,000 years or something like that. How, how do you answer them? And then if we're still in the seventh day, that's the old and the new covenant, Jesus's arrival, that's all in the seventh day. Um, is the purpose of the seventh day, what's the purpose of the seventh day for us as humans? That God is still creating or that he's done? Now you're asking the best question. And the thing that struck me when I was first going through the Bible in my teenage years is that repeatedly it says that God began his works of redemption before he created anything at all. And so that's how I look at science. 
that the universe is all designed to make possible the redemption of billions of human beings from their sin and evil. Uh, you know, I wrote a book called Design of the Core, basically making the point the entire universe, all of its subcomponents, all of its events are designed with redemption in mind, the redemption of human beings. And so, you know, that's God's perspective that uh, he's creating to redeem. For six days, he creates. What is he doing on the seventh day? He's redeeming. And when his work of redemption is finished, then we move into a new creation. And, you know, one of my books, The Why the Universe is the Way It Is, I make the point. Notice that this universe is designed to be tools in God's hands to deliver us from sin and evil. We need to have thermodynamics, electromagnetism, gravity, the strong and weak nuclear forces. Uh, that guarantees what you see in Genesis chapter 3, that the more we humans sin, the more work we have to do to undo the damage of our sin, the more pain we experience. And the book of Ecclesiastes says the more time we'll waste. And so the laws of physics are actually in place to motivate us to avoid evil and pursue virtue. But in the process, discover we lack the resources. We need God's help. We can't do it on our own. And that's really the gospel message. God is prepared to do for us what we can't do uh, for ourselves. The laws of physics actually guide us uh, to that conclusion. And I see that especially in the book of Job. Uh, Job didn't have a Bible, but he looked at nature and he was able to draw the conclusions. Number one, we're all caught in sin. There's a law written on our hearts that God wants us to obey. Uh, no matter how we, hard we work, we can't do it. Uh, but God is so loving, so powerful, so wise, and so knowledgeable. He must have, have a plan to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, which is why you got Job saying, I know I have an advocate, uh, someone to make a bridge between me and the Creator. And I know that advocate desires to redeem me. And therefore, I'm putting my entire hope in that Redeemer. And I know I'll see him on the last day in my flesh. That's chapter 19 uh, of the book of Job. He got that from looking at the record of nature, which is why I think God refers to Job as one of the three most humble and wisest men that lived in the Old Testament. He was able to figure all that out. Uh, you know, very few of us have that level of wisdom or humility to draw those conclusions, which is why God gives us the book of Scripture. Most of us need to hear the gospel presented in multiple ways before it sinks home. We say, okay, I get it. I need God's help. And so uh, God does that. But the moment that the full number of humans has been redeemed, God no longer needs thermodynamics, electromagnetism, or gravity. Uh, as Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Or as I sometimes paraphrase John 16, in this world you'll have thermodynamics, gravity, and electromagnetism, but take heart, I've overcome all that. When you get to the new creation, Revelation 21, there's no gravity, there's no thermodynamics. There's no electromagnetism. Consequently, no death, no decay, no suffering. Uh, but that only takes place when evil has been completely eradicated. Hmm. Wow. 
That was really, that was an incredible uh, description and an answer to that question. <laughs> I'm sitting here processing, but it, it, it got me thinking. We're going to go off script. You ready? Okay. Um, so how do you reconcile that with, so there's an intelligent designer. Is there other intelligent beings beyond us outside of this? You know, there's all the talk in the news about disclosure and alien disclosure and crafts and beings. Um, where does that conversation fit in the middle of this? Well, we astronomers actually want to go to the nearest planet outside of our solar system with <laughs> spaceships. Uh, Are you signed we, up with Elon Musk to uh, to go to Mars in the next few years? Well, he came up with the idea, but astronomers basically calculated, okay, uh, it's four light years away, and uh, we're going to need to go fairly fast to get there in a period of time. But the faster we go, the more damage to the spaceship. And so they determined about the fastest you could possibly go without your spaceship being destroyed uh, is one-tenth the velocity of light. And the bigger your spaceship, the bigger the cross-section, the greater the damage. And so you want to make your spaceship as small as possible to minimize the damage. And so astronomers have determined if we're going to learn anything about that planet uh, by direct contact with spacecraft, we're going to need to send a minimum of 1,000 spaceships uh, to this uh, planet. And the spaceships cannot be bigger than 10 centimeters across. <laughs> so talking a spaceship that big. Now, we got the technology today. We can put quite a bit of uh, you know, instruments into a 10 centimeter uh, diameter spaceship. But the recognition is by the time you get to four light years, over half of those spaceships will be totally destroyed by the intervening particles and dust. The other half will be partly destroyed, but in different ways. And so the hope is that we'll actually be able to get some meaningful data back uh, from those uh, spacecraft. But we're talking a 50-year project because it's going to take 42 years to get there and another 4.2 years to send back any information. So uh, it's a fairly long-term investment. But the bottom line is, you're not going to get people like us going across interstellar space. You're not even going to get termites able to go across interstellar space. Not even a microbe is going to be able to survive a journey in a spaceship that small. So we've not been visited uh, by extraterrestrial aliens that are subject to the laws of physics. However, the Bible tells us that God created two distinct species of intelligent life. We humans that are constrained by the laws of physics and angels that are not constrained. Uh, they're not constrained by the physics or the dimensions. And God has given them the power to come into our realm. He's not given us the power to go into their realm. And so they can come into our realm, as you see in Hebrews 13 too, speaking to Christians. Many of you have entertained angels unawares. Uh, God will send the righteous angels to assist us in our ministries. And so typically we just see in the book of Acts, when angels appear, they appear for a few seconds or a few minutes, and they're gone. But they do the critical thing that's necessary to assist us in our ministry. But the Bible is also clear that there are two categories of angels. 
the righteous angels that are aligned with God and the unrighteous angels that are aligned uh, with Satan, the most powerful being that God created. And uh, <clears throat> gee, let me see. I think I got another book here. Yeah, this is it. I don't know that I've ever met anyone that has written as many books as you have. I don't know when you do that, but it's impressive. Well, I don't play golf and I don't fish, so that makes it possible <laughs> there you go. Sold. these books. And I've only written 23 books, only. so I'm working on number 24. But this is one of them, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men, uh, where I write about UFOs, what they now refer to as UAPs. That's right. Unidentified anomalous uh, phenomena. And uh, I became an expert on UFOs completely by, by accident, without any intention. I was 16 years of age. I was a director of observations for Vancouver's Astronomical Society. And I said, we need a booth at the Pacific National Exhibition. So we organized it and had this booth. They put us right next to the Flying Saucer Club. <laughs> and so people would go to the Flying Saucer Club booth and they come and say, hey, I saw this thing in the sky. And because I knew the night sky well, I was able to explain a lot of what people thought were UFOs. I said, no, uh, that was the planet Venus. That was the Pleiades rising. That was a fireball. Uh, so when I went on to the university, they said, hey, you know the night sky? We're going to have you process all the UFO reports we get. And that happened at every institution huh. that I went on to uh, from that point. So, uh, you, so what do you make of then what's going on right now with it, – it's becoming a little more mainstream. Everybody from Chris Cuomo to Joe Rogan are talking about the UAPs. They're interviewing these Air Force pilots that are seeing things right, they can't right. explain. And which either a it feels like is either some technology that we have developed that is not that they don't want us to know about, or b that something else is happening. Where do you come in on all that? Well, ninety nine percent of what people would report to me as UAPs or UFOs, I could come up with a natural explanation, tell them it was a hoax or it's secret military activity. But there's a one percent residual that does not fall into those three categories. And what's interesting about the 1% residual, we can prove it's real. We can also prove that it's not physical. It's something not at all subject to the laws of physics. The proof that it's real is there's been over 2,000 documented cases where observers in multiple locations saw the UFO go through the atmosphere, crash into the Earth, and they go to the crash site and they see a shallow crater. They see melted snow. The vegetation is always damaged. But you go to the crater site, there's no debris, there's no artifacts. And when the observers report the UFO going through the atmosphere, there's no heat friction and no sonic boom. If it's a physical object moving at 5,000 miles per hour, you will get a sonic boom. You will see heat friction trailing uh, the object. And when you go to the crash site, there's going to be debris. The fact that we don't see any of that tells us we're dealing with something that's non-physical. And that's consistent with what these pilots are reporting, where they report that they're seeing an object moving at, say, 10,000 miles per hour and making a sharp right-angle turn. Uh, no physical object can withstand those G-forces. And yet what they're seeing is able to do that. And uh, 
There are six physicists who've devoted more than a decade of researching these residual UFOs. They all agree with the French astrophysicist Jacques Vallée. We're dealing with something interdimensional. It's a phenomena from beyond the dimensions of this universe. Well, that's consistent with what the Bible teaches us about angels. And Alan Hynek, uh, an American physicist in the 1960s, he was the one that came up with the term close encounters of the first kind, second, third, fourth, and fifth kind. Uh, but what he demonstrated is that when you have a close encounter, it's always deleterious. It's always harmful. The best you're going to come away from with such an encounter is recurring terrified nightmares. Worst case scenario, people have been killed by these encounters. Uh, but what we document in Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men, it only happens to people that are heavily involved in the occult. Uh, as the Bible tells us, these fallen angels need permission to invade your life. You give them permission through trying to seek occult powers. And these fallen angels or demons are more than willing to trade you power for truth. They'll steal the truth away from you, but they will offer uh, these powers. And so uh, in the United States alone, we've got four different UFO cults, and uh, they're based on what's called the Arantia book, which is a book uh, that UFO beings communicated to human contactees, where the contactees were put into a trance, and they're basically typing away and produce the Arantia book. What's interesting about the Arantia book, a third of its content is denying the deity of Jesus Christ. So it gives you some indication of what's going on. And what I point out in the book is that with these close encounters, where people claim to have communication with these UFO beings, their astronomy is always incorrect. Uh, and I notice that their technology keeps pace with our technology. UFO uh, in encounters have been going on at least for 3,000 years. But 150 years ago, they were slow-moving balloons in the atmosphere. 100 years ago, they were like dirigibles. And then World War II, the Foo Fighters. Now they're moving as fast as our fastest spaceships. So they apparently are keeping pace with our technology. They're also keeping pace with lay-level knowledge of astronomy. A hundred years ago, they were telling their contactees, we're from the backside of the moon. But when the lay public became aware, well, that's not credible, they said, well, we're from Venus. And when people became aware of how hot it is in the surface of Venus, they said, we're from Mars. What's their story today? We're from a distant planetary system. But I'm waiting for that time when the lay public becomes aware it's simply impossible for physical craft uh, bigger than 10 centimeters across to traverse interstellar space. Then I expect we're going to get a different story again. Do you think that there's anything to do, Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, they were partying, carrying on, marrying, you know, that there's been some suggestion that part of what's happening with the UAP phenomena is a return of the Nephilim, like a return of some sort of being that we don't understand that walks and talks among us. What does an astrophysicist make of that? 
Well, I think the Nephilim were wiped out by David's mighty men. That's the last time we hear the Nephilim. So uh, uh, I know a lot of Bible prophecy teachers are warning us that the Nephilim are coming back. I do think that uh, we are at risk of encountering fallen angels. I mean, I've been in parts of the world where people are deep into the occult. So I personally have seen that I remember addressing an audience in the Soviet Union where a quarter of the scientists in the audience were demon-possessed. But that was a time uh, when the communists in Soviet Russia were investing heavily in occult physics, mm. trying to come up with a weapon they could use against the West. Consequently, a lot of their physicists got deep into the occult and wound up being possessed by demons. So we don't see that much of it here in America because the level of the occult is a lot less. Although I do notice I see a lot more of this in Alaska and Hawaii than I do the other 48 states. But those are two states where you've got a lot of people involved in the occult. And we claim in this book that we have a scientifically testable model to explain these UAPs. Open the doors to the occult in any significant way, you're going to experience these kinds of encounters. Take the occult out of your life, that'll be the end of your UFO encounters. So it's testable. Hmm. So we close the book off by saying, these are ways uh, that you can fall prey uh, to these fallen angels. Get this out of your life, and that'll be the end of these experiences. Uh, but also check with your close relatives, because demons can work through a father or a grandfather or a sexual partner. I mean, I remember interviewing one guy who was having these close encounters with UFOs, and he insisted there was no occult in his life. And, you know, he gave me the evidence. And I said, well, uh, do you have a close relative? And he said, no, none of them are. Uh, but I found out that his girlfriend that he was sleeping with was a witch. I said, well, there's your... That'll that, do that's it. <laughs> you think that could set off the alarm there? <laughs> Uh, you, you mentioned a minute ago about interdimensional beings, angels, fallen angels. How many dimensions do you believe exist? How many dimensions are there? Well, just for the universe alone, you need uh, 10 dimensions, three big space dimensions, six extremely tiny space dimensions, and one time dimension. However... A time's going to come when evil is eradicated and God will replace this universe with a new creation, which is going to have completely different dimensions than the dimensions of this universe. I believe angels dwell in dimensions completely independent of the 10 space-time dimensions of this universe. We now have space-time theorems. Uh, you mentioned Stephen Hawking. Uh, he and Roger Penrose produced the first of the space-time theorems which basically prove if the universe contains mass, and the three of us are living proof that there is mass in the universe, and if the equations of general relativity reliably describe the movements of bodies in the universe, which we can now prove to 15 places of the decimal, then space and time have a beginning. Space and time must be created, which implies there must be a causal agent beyond space and time with a power to create space-time dimensions. You know, and that's the God of the Bible. I mean, what I noticed when I compared the Bible with other holy books, in the other holy books, 
It's God that creates within space and time. The God of the Bible creates outside, independent of space and time. He actually created space and time when he created the universe. So he can create as many dimensions as he wants. He can remove as many dimensions as he wants at any time. And who knows, maybe he's got dimensions that are completely independent of space and time. I'm eager to find out. So you you are saying, though, that, the, that there are 10 dimensions minimum that, that you're aware minimum. of. Minimum, yes. That's fun. <laughs> what, with the, the, the Hubble telescope, I'm about to flip the, jump the rails. Uh, there was a claim made, if I remember right, like last year, that with some of the new stuff that Hubble has discovered, that it is uh, negating the Big Bang Theory or contradicting the Big Bang Theory. Have you followed any of that? Yes, uh, it's the James Webb Space Telescope, which is basically focused on trying to observe the early history of the universe. And there is a paper published where they said these early galaxies are 10 times too bright at ultraviolet wavelengths if the Big Bang is actually explaining the origin of those galaxies. So yeah, if you go to reasons.org, I put out a blog called Today's New Reason to Believe every two weeks. Well, it was about a month or two ago, I basically explained that whole paper was designed on assuming that star formation was happening at a constant rate in the first billion years of cosmic history. But we astronomers know from two billion years out to the present, it doesn't work that way. The star formation in galaxies goes up and down like this. And so as a team of astronomers that said, well, let's just make uh, for the first billion years, the assumption that it goes up and down like this, just like it does for the later galaxies. And when they discovered is when they did that, that makes the ultraviolet luminosity of those galaxies 10 times brighter. And so, yeah, the Big Bang is completely consistent with yeah. observations coming from the James Webb Space Telescope. In fact, this summer, we're going to be sponsoring a workshop at Reasons to Believe where we're bringing in the leading astronomers that are working on the James Webb Space Telescope basically to address, is the James Webb giving a stronger case for the Big Bang or a weaker case for the Big Bang? Uh, but having read the scientific literature, I already know what the answer is. Right. Is there anything in the Bible that speaks of creation, science, whatever, that is demonstrably incorrect or false? I've not found anything since I gave my life to Jesus Christ at age 19. And I think you can tell from the camera here, I'm not that young. So uh, I've been studying the Bible for decades. Yeah. I've not found anything. Now, sometimes what I see is someone will show me a scientific paper and says, hey, this is anomalous. It's not fitting uh, your you know, biblical creation perspective. I said, well, uh, anomalies are always an opportunity to learn more. Let's dig into that anomaly and see what happens as we learn more. And my experience over my life is every time we see something in science that doesn't fit our biblical creation model, when we study it, it gets resolved. But in resolving it, it reveals more anomalies that we weren't aware of. Uh, and But those new anomalies are less significant in the anomaly that we resolve. And when you see that level of significance dropping in the anomalies, 
that tells you you're on the pathway to truth. Uh, but there's always anomalies. But anomalies is a great way to test the models. If the anomalies get more numerous, uh, more problematic, uh, you probably got the wrong model. When the anomalies are getting less numerous and less problematic, uh, you're on the pathway to the correct model. And that's the way it's been for 2,000 years. The thing that's encouraged me, and thanks for that, because that's actually helpful language for me, but the Bible, whether it's geography, you know, archaeology, cosmology, it just keeps either being proven, like it was right and we knew it, or things that we, especially in archaeology, that we assumed was wrong, then archaeology they uncovered that it turns out that it was right the whole time. And it's one of the things that I'm excited about this book that you're talking about on recovering inerrancy. Is that what you've called it? You're calling it? Rescuing inerrancy. Rescuing inerrancy. Because we'll send you a copy. I mean, uh, oh, I'll the buy book it. Just I, got I, released in January. <laughs> it's actually I've already ordered it. So uh, okay. on Amazon on a pre-order because I'm that level of nerd. There's a okay, good. <laughs> I just it was important to me to ask that because there are actually there's a pastor in in our town teaching uh, through Genesis right now, and he's made the statement that the Bible is not a science book. But what he says that what he means is not that it's not a science book. What he means is that these things that the Bible gets wrong, um, it's because it's not a science book. That's what he means, which is not rescuing yeah. inerrancy. That's making the Bible errant, not inerrant. Right. I mean, you can go too far and claim that there's more overlap between the book of nature and the book of scripture than is actually the case, but they do overlap. There is some science in the Bible. And there's over 20 uh, lengthy creation texts in the Bible. Uh, but all those creation texts are consistent with one another, and they're consistent with what we see in the book of nature. And what I notice in both the book of Job and Psalms is the repeated state, the more we learn about nature, the more evidence we'll uncover for the supernatural handiwork of God. And that's kind of the mission of Reasons to Believe, is to demonstrate that the emerging discoveries in the scientific literature step-by-step step are giving us a progressively stronger case that God has supernaturally intervened in order to bring about a redemption from sin and evil. In fact, what I share with university audiences is that the case gets at least a factor of a thousand times stronger every month. So I tell them, if you're not persuaded today, wait a month. If in the next 30 days, you get a thousand times stronger scientific case for the God of the Bible, perhaps you ought to give serious attention to what the Bible is saying about your life. Hmm. Hugh, thank you for letting us dip our toe in the water of this topic in this conversation. And we are really, really excited to have you with us in person in, I believe, three weeks, the 1st of March, right. as we kick yeah. off our creation series uh, through the book of Genesis. Uh, we can't think of a better way to kick off the series, quite frankly, than <laughs> to have you with us on that Sunday. So we just want to say thank you. Thank you for being part of our podcast. And we look forward to uh, seeing you here in person in just a few weeks. I'm looking forward to it, too. In fact, one of our board members, an astrophysicist, is going to be there. Oh, so wow. It should be nice. Yeah. Very good. Well, Thanks thank you. you. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye-bye.